This is the Banker's Corner, a McGuire Woods series exploring investment trends, solutions, and business issues relevant in today's private equity and finance industry. Tune in with McGuire Woods partner Jeff Cockrell as he and specialists share real-world insight to help enhance your knowledge. This is Jeff Cockrell from McGuire Woods, and this is a continuation of our Corner series where we do short podcasts, 15 or 20 minutes, on various topics. So one series is entitled Professor's Corner, where we go through more technical aspects of healthcare deal-making. And then our second corner series is called Banker's Corner, where we interview some of the kind of movers and shakers in healthcare private equity deal-making to get a perspective on what the market looks like, what trends we're seeing, uh, terms and deals. Today, I'm joined by my good friend, Justin Hand from West Cove Partners, one of the best middle market investment bankers that I know. And we're going to talk through the prognosis for healthcare M&A heading into 2022 uh, and some other topics. But Justin, can you uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about West Cove before we get started? Thank you, Jeff, and appreciate you allowing us to participate in the Banker's Corner here. West Cove is a boutique investment bank focused in healthcare services, and we've been very successful the last two years, really bringing the fundamentals of what a bulge bracket investment bank is to the boutique investment banking setting. We've been fortunate to represent several founders through their first institutional round of capital raise or exits to strategics, and really try to be very aligned with representing the very best businesses in the respective areas of healthcare they have coverage in. So looking forward to sharing our perspectives and talking about 2022. So, Justin. 2021 could not have ended in more of a flurry of activity. Just the the deal volume was almost soul-crushing of deals getting done and squeezed into 2021 for numerous reasons. Uh, In September, there was a lot of concern about taxes going up, but everything kind of coalesced around finishing a whole bunch of things by the end of 2021. And not surprisingly, anything that didn't get started pretty aggressively by September or early October was kind of pushed to to next year. So the million-dollar question uh, now is, since we've finished a crazy 2021, what can we expect in 2022? So from kind of where you sit in kind of middle market provider services, Justin, let's talk a little bit about some of the drivers we think that are going to contribute to kind of continuation of the deal pace that we saw in 21 continuing into 2022. Justin, what do you think some of the drivers are that we're seeing? Yeah, I think first and foremost, before thinking about 2022, I think it's important to reflect on really the last 18 months, concluding in December of 2021. Capital gains was a big driver of the rationale as to why individuals were considering an exit. Um, I think fortunately for those on the on the phone or those listening, I think that we've got some clarity that for the foreseeable future that the capital gains rates will likely stay the same. So I think that will end up being a driver in, into 2022. The fear of paying more in taxes, I think, has dissipated for many. But I think more than anything, COVID, and not to continue to talk about this, this subject area, COVID definitely made all entrepreneurs, business owners, physician groups, shareholders recognize that even though healthcare is somewhat immune, um, we are not immune to something at a systematic perspective such as a pandemic. I think when we think about the deals that happened last year, I think a lot of the deals that happened in 2021 was a result of those that transactions that would have happened in 2020 actually got delayed until last year. So I do think that was a, is a byproduct of some overflow from 2020 into 2021. But I think more than anything, it's a lot of entrepreneurs recognizing that what they need to do to 
grow in a COVID world when they're competing with private equity-backed portfolio companies is, is becoming more difficult, and I think that was a big reason why transactions happened last year. How that relates to 2022, I think continuing with COVID as just the first kind of rationale and motivation for business owners, I think that all of us, uh, bankers, third parties that are involved in these processes on the legal side, on the quality of earnings side, on the insurance side, we're all experiencing something that these privately held businesses are experiencing, and that is getting, recruiting, and maintaining employees and team members is becoming more of a challenge. And we are hearing more and more organizations over the last quarter, Q4 2021 heading into right now, coming around and saying that they thought they made it through COVID and having to shut their doors and, and seeing patients or going into the field. They thought the COVID was behind us, but now they're facing a whole new challenge, and that is on the employee side. And how do we balance the new expectation of how you need to um, give flexibility to individuals on the employee side with also managing a practice or a business that's uh, patient-facing? And so I think a lot of entrepreneurs are starting to recognize that an alignment with the larger organization likely is the biggest is the way in which they can be successful in carrying their brand into the future. And I think that we'll see that um, kind of accelerate in 2022 as I don't think the challenges around employment are going to change. Right. They kind of coalesce around for a smaller business. I, I think the the experience in the pandemic and the kind of the pressure on hiring that you're, you're articulating really brought forward the risks of being smaller and less well capitalized. The inability to withstand kind of the forms of the COVID uh, was very jarring to a lot of smaller businesses. And just the uh, the difficulty of competing with much better capitalized competitors is just become increasingly brutal. So I, I agree that those dynamics are gonna continue on into the future. And also for the foreseeable future, at least, the pricing uh, and the money is still too good to walk away from for very long. Obviously, multiples can shift a little bit over time, and there could be some inputs on that from uh, perhaps higher interest rates. But for the time being, at least, the multiples are still uh, super high. So the tailwinds of uh, smaller practices wanting to sell to larger ones and then the ongoing consolidation roll-up of the bigger practices into the bigger practices into the bigger practices feels like that those dynamics are going to continue for the foreseeable future. I wholeheartedly agree, and I think that, yes, we will see increases on the interest rates, which will have an impact on private equity firms' ability to lend in some way. But we're also fortunate that we haven't seen a slowdown in the dry partner that exists in the marketplace. Fundraising continues to strengthen. KKR just announced the most recent $4 billion healthcare fund, this other new emergence into the private equity space, which is um, patient as example, um, that are making real big entry points into this industry and have a commitment towards healthcare. So even if we, as we see increases on the interest rates that in theory have a impact on uh, returns to private equity firms, the abundance of capital in the marketplace should offset that. So I think that we will continue to see private equity firms be very aggressive this year, likely heading into 2023. I also think from the on the physician side, I think 2021 was an interesting year in that from, from experience, one of the most common comments that we receive from physician groups when they are entertaining 
a process or thinking about what their options are is this fear that the value of the rollover may be zero because there isn't a large precedent of secondary or third recapitalizations in these processes on behalf of private equity. Um, and that is because physician consolidation, though it dates back 10 years, many of the subspecialties that I mentioned before, GI, OB, orthopedics, fertility, oral surgery, these are relatively new, about the last half decade, I'd say, four to five years. What was interesting about 2021 is we did see some formidable national organizations go through their secondary recapitalization. Organizations, just think about, just pick with one sector, the OB sector, Axia, Women's Health of, of WUSA, Women's Health USA, and UWH, uh, all of those organizations went through secondary recapitalization. And, and so to stick with that, I think that provides confidence to privately held organizations in this example in that sector that there is an opportunity to realize the value of their rollover shares and that there's more precedent beyond what was just, say, dermatology going through secondary recapitalizations or ophthalmology. So I think as that trend continues to happen and we see more of these private equity firms that invest into platforms two, three, four, five years ago also experiencing a return on, on their investment because they're going through a secondary recapitalization. I think that provides more comfort to, to business, to, to shareholder bases in the physician space to realize that there is value in what these partnerships look like well beyond the cash consideration they get at close. It kind of supports and builds confidence that this makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And the market for the larger transactions is, is evolving and becoming more visible because it, for a while, kind of to your point, you have a, a, a smaller doctor-owned practice. They sell to a financial investor. And even in the ones that are more established, uh, they, they sell that financial sponsor, sells to another sponsor, who sells to another sponsor. And the question, is there an endpoint where there's no more buyers? Is the big box buyer uh, a terminal position? If that were true, then the whole progression would break down. So in the last 12, 18, 24 months, there's been an evolution on the back end of that. To your point, there's larger funds than there were before. That The $4 billion KKR fund was certainly a big splash. And so that opens up another level of buyer size. But it's not just an ever bigger fund because that would raise the next question, well, who do they sell to? The market is evolving as the IPO market is continuing to expand as a landing place for these businesses. There's also a developing kind of quasi-public market where you've got large, large uh, institutional investors that are making investments where their uh, return expectations are more kind of consistent with public market growth return expectations. So that opens up a more stable buyer for, for these businesses. Uh, we're seeing larger kind of club deals put, being put together by the one question is, does it have to be an ever bigger fund? And one of the answers is, no, you can have kind of clubs of large investors be the next buyer. Uh, we're seeing sovereign uh, funds being kind of ultimate terminal uh, buyers of these businesses. So the back-end big box buyer market is getting more clear, and all of that bodes well for all the participants kind of downstream from that that are putting together things of scale to sell to the next person to sell to the next person. The success on the back-end is going to really validate and continue that process. So it's good to see that happening as well. Absolutely. I think the only maybe comments or correction I make there is 
finance has the ability to always create something, so I do not think there's ever a terminal value in, in the way in which you can create value on behalf of assets. Um, I think you see private equity firms kind of pursuing continuation vehicles for assets that they hold within their portfolio companies. Some of those are based off of the private equity firms still believing the fundamentals of that investment makes sense. I think you could also argue that some of those continuation vehicles are utilized because there isn't a buyer at the value that that private equity firm expected to yield out of a process. So there's a lot of creativity in finance. I think that will continue to, that will always be the case. I think your comments on the IPO market is very interesting. I think for the first time ever, and, and probably we'll get to this in this discussion or future one, the market is starting to recognize the benefits of kind of value-based care and the ability to measure outcomes in practices or, or healthcare businesses. And I think that all consumers and all investors are starting to recognize that healthcare as a percentage of GDP is, is too high not to focus on that. And I think because of that, over time, and it's not a short-term horizon, this is going to take some time, but I think for the first time ever, the public markets will start to recognize that healthcare, from an investing standpoint, from a public standpoint, needs to be viewed differently than the way we typically think about valuing publicly traded businesses. So will it mimic the way in which we kind of look past the fundamentals like in technology or tech tech investments. I don't know that that's the case, but I think we will see the public markets start to look past the, the traditional way in which you value businesses, uh, which is on a, an EPS or profitability standpoint when you look at healthcare. And I think there's some examples of that. Some of the publicly traded entities that are in the uh, direct primary care space and where they're trading today. Um, while down from a year ago, there's starting to be a recognition that you got to look at kind of the way in which it, we drive costs down for all of us in the United States as opposed towards just profitability of a business and there's value inherent in those businesses if you can actually um, showcase the way in which you're reducing costs. So I think we'll see a pop on the public side with time for sure, which therefore creates a lack of terminal. You mentioned the value-based medicine evolution, I, I think one of the ways that I hear private equity investors talk about that is that disruptions in how things are done kind of create opportunity. If you're smart and have capital, you can invest into disruptive changes, well, whether that's the move away from fee-for-service to value-based medicine and the ability to, say, well, walk into a market if you're a, uh, uh, an orthopedic uh, practice and start to contract with payers on a, on a capitation basis, that's wildly disruptive in, in local markets. And the potential for disruptive innovation uh, in healthcare is immense. And disruption is happening all around. The resurgence in California, them uh, dabbling with maybe moving towards a single payer uh, system, that would be disruptive. And there'll be lots of opportunity for smart and well-capitalized investors to participate in that disruption and be a, a change agent in it and do very well. So I think the disruptive evolution in healthcare is going to continue to create opportunities for investing. Yeah, I agree. I think our expertise as of today is more later stage investments. And I think that meaning businesses that are doing five plus in EBITDA um, is kind of our, our I don't want to say minimum threshold, but where we spend most of our time, kind of 5 to 20 in EBITDA. I do think that there's more talk around disruptive healthcare today, in particular from the investor community, because going back to my comment before, I think conceptually, 
private equity firms know that that's where we're headed. I don't quite think that most of them, there's exceptions to this, but I don't think that most of them are willing to, in their five-year hold period of making an investment, they're willing to take, take such bold chances that we need to actually have a long-term impact on healthcare. Now, why I say the threshold of five plus, I do think there's a whole community of investors more on the venture side or growth side on the healthcare industry that are willing to take those bold, make those bold investments and make those bold moves or those chances on businesses that have a bolder idea of how they can have an influence on, on healthcare. Um, so I think we will see more and more disruption coming from earlier stage businesses over time. And that, going back to where we started, I think as those disruptions happen, you'll start to see more of the mature businesses. Again, that will accelerate the mergers and acquisition activity on those businesses that are five plus NEBITDA because they're stuck in their ways and it's more difficult to be agile when you're of that size. They will start to think about doing a deal when you've got the influences of smart dollars at the lower market being disruptive to the industry. So I, I, I think that's a trend. That they, they kind of go hand in hand, in my opinion. I don't know if you disagree with that or if that makes sense to you, but I think it's those the venture earlier stage investor community that is going to have an influence and force the more stable businesses to really consider an exit in some way or an alignment in some way. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Justin, I think we'll call it a break here. Uh, this has been super instructive, uh, and I think our collective consensus is that 2022 uh, shows a lot of promise for a lot of activity, hopefully not quite the frenetic pace of Q4 of 2021, but 2022 should be good. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this installment of uh, the Banker's Corner, um, and there'll be more of them to come. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us on this installment of The Banker's Corner. To learn more about today's discussion, please email host Jeff Cockrell at gcockrell at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This series was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this series, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this installment. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This series should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action. 